You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Vampires have been portrayed in many ways in popular culture. There are the tragic aristocrats. There are the doomed lovers. There are the mindless revenants. But what's easy to forget in the deluge of fictional vampires is that there was a time when a vampire wasn't a romantic fantasy. It was a real and present danger in the minds of many. Not only did people report seeing the recently buried entering their homes at night, but they also had a variety of frightening phenomena that accompanied these attacks. And of course, there were defenses, many which involved dismembering the suspected vampire, which is all fine and good if you're considering the victims trying to protect themselves, but it's not quite so harmless if the vampire is just your poor neighbor who accidentally got buried alive. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I have to tell you that while I always enjoy putting together this show, I especially love this interview with Dr. Richard Sugg. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, Monster Talk likes to examine monster stories from the perspective of scientific skepticism. Our guest today is a lecturer from the Department of English at Durham University in England. He was previously on our show about mummies, and a link to that episode and his fascinating book on the practice of using mummies in medicine will be in the show notes. Today, we're talking about Richard's extensive research into vampires from historical accounts and the fascinating connection he's uncovered with what would probably be best categorized as poltergeist behavior in conjunction with these cases. Richard allowed Karen and I to look at some excerpts from his research, and they're a fascinating collection of case data 
which will make for an engaging read once he finds a publisher for this new work. Monster Dog. All right, Richard, how, how did your research turn to vampires? I began about seven years ago now, I suppose. I've been researching uh, the soul in the early modern period, and the soul is a big element in terms of how real vampires, how folk vampires were created. So I started to get into the topic of vampires, I suppose through the obvious stuff in some ways, the, the fiction, the film that people know, such as Dracula and Carmilla. And I first of all thought I'd need a little bit of folklore to kind of ground the, the literary stuff. And then I, I realized how huge uh, this was. It was a bit like doing an archaeological excavation. You think you're dealing with a small house and you realize you've got a whole city underneath your feet. So I, I wandered through this uh, city of the vampires for, for several years afterwards. So, Richard, I guess this is a basic question, but what constitutes a vampire? How was a vampire created? Yes, good question. Uh, originally, the the revenants or vampires uh, that you you encountered in Greece, Romania, etc., they they came about for broadly a couple of reasons, and one was because they were useful. They were a scapegoat for an outbreak of contagious disease, which was possibly deadly, and there was a, a common kind of belief that vampires only attacked their own families or vampires first attacked their own families. So quite quickly, you can see that this is likely a, a contagious uh, disease within a family. So you'd, you'd think who died recently? Well, possibly the person who first died of contagion. And if other people were sick or dying, you'd exhume them and you'd check the, the status of the body. And it might happen that it was deep winter. It wasn't very decomposed. It might happen quite a lot of the time, as far as we can tell from our outside witnesses, that actually it was pretty decomposed. But if they thought there was anything that was dangerous, they would they would take measures and burn it, uh, cut it up and, and so forth. So you've got one very basic kind of social useful reason uh, which links the vampire to the witch, who is also a scapegoat. The other reason uh, links that can link with this but doesn't have to, and this is a curious phenomenon called uh, the sleep paralysis nightmare, so that every night when we go to sleep during REM sleep, we're paralyzed uh, routinely so that we don't act out our dreams. But if you get into a kind of out-of-sequence state where you become conscious of this, uh, you're, you're lying there conscious, you can't move, you can't speak, uh, and you don't know what's going on in most cases. Add to this, as you can have in, in some instances, a nightmare, and you might get auditory hallucinations, a sense of an entity that may or may not be visible, perhaps just visible outside of your the, the left field of vision, and this comes closer, it gets onto your bed, it seems to have tangible weight, uh, it seems to depress your bed, it, it might seem to get onto your chest, uh, it seems to be presently sucking the life out of you, throttling you. And fascinatingly, from modern atheists, modern materialists uh, avowed in that way, this, this experience doesn't feel like the entity is after your life, it feels like it's after your soul. Now, if, if a modern atheist could feel this and have that sense of doom, of menace about this experience, just begin to try to imagine what this felt like for somebody in uh, vampire territory or witch territory. So you, your brain, as this is happening, tries to make the most sense out of the experience that it can. And it does that, apparently, according to your local cultural constructs and beliefs. So if you like, you kind of choose your demon as it's happening. Uh, vampire country will be a vampire 
which country it'll be a which and um, wonderfully enough to add to to complete this unholy trinity in uh, modern uh, North America particularly it'll be an alien abductor so two two big reasons uh, with kind of medical underpinnings why vampires uh, were thought to exist. Have you ever had uh, sleep paralysis yourself? Yes. Uh, I, I warn you, if you research this, it can get under your skin. I um, had never had a sleep paralysis experience. didn't know what it was for most of my life. And I never had such an experience in, in over 40 years. And uh, I went off on holiday, been working a bit too hard and had been deeply immersed in this topic and ended up having had quite a late meal in a strange room just recovering from a fair bit of stress. These are all catalysts for a nightmare. And, and I did have the experience. Uh, what was interesting was that it wasn't profoundly menacing. It's far from being the worst anyone's ever had. There was a kind of figure uh, on, my, on my chest. Um, looked like it was made of television snow. And uh, I, I knew what was going on quite quickly. I was aware of what was going on. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. But I, uh, I just sort of in my head, swore at this entity and it went away quite quickly um so the sense that if you've got a, a kind of rational concrete objective frame of reference for it you can you can deal with it was quite interesting in the in the personal experience i actually had several of those kind of events in the 90s yes and um, yes I thought it, I was very, very convinced that it was a ghost <laughs> because it, right. felt, it yeah. felt so yeah. much like something had crawled into the bed and gotten on top of me. It felt really very substantial. But then I couldn't move. Like I felt pinned to the bed and uh, it had a huge impact on me. I was so relieved to learn about sleep paralysis and that um, that I was not. Uh, how did you how did you find out eventually I act well I've always been interested in ghosts uh, and the paranormal yeah. and um, I yeah. was watching a documentary about the topic and uh, a lot of them just tell ghost stories you know which is you know entertaining but this one actually had sure. uh, Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine on and he said well a lot of this is uh, sleep paralysis and as he described it I was like oh my gosh that is exactly what happened to me <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think it, what's curious and paradoxical about this is that even in the age of the Internet, it, there isn't much of a community uh, and for sleep paralysis sufferers compared to if you were in a vampire village or a witch village as this stuff spread around. And it did spread around and kind of people caught it, essentially. You, you had a very definite community and everyone knew what was happening. They knew what you were talking about. They were wrong in a sense, but, but you had support. And I, I was teaching 14 students a while ago and talked to them about this. Three of them had, had had this happen to them and nobody knew what it was about. Their parents didn't know what it was about, that there was no internet at the time. And actually, paradoxically quite isolated sometimes in a modern scientific society uh, from this kind of event, actually. Well, I've had it happen to me a couple of times too, but I think it was more a kind of yeah. sleep apnea experience. Uh, but how, okay. do you know how common it is to have sleep paralysis? Because it seems like most people I've spoken with have had some form of experience. Yes, I, I gather that the figures range between about 20 and 30%. Um, and, and they range quite widely statistically. And my impression is that it really isn't known because it's the kind of thing that can actually be quite tabooed if you talk about it, even to a medical professional within recent years. The, the, the figures that diverge by about 10% as an estimate of 20, 30% of people having uh, sleep paralysis experiences seem to be an interesting example of 
problem with a frame of reference that because there isn't often a frame of reference for sleep paralysis nightmares, people don't talk about them. So I think the, the statistical data is, is very uncertain for that reason. And interestingly, somebody can talk to a, a medical doctor in North America within recent years and be referred to a psychiatrist so that the medical doctor doesn't understand the condition or they can talk to their parents. Uh, they're absolutely terrified. They don't know what to do, who to go to. And their parents will fairly kind of indignantly tell them to shut up. Uh, later, they'll find out that this is a family problem, runs in the family to some extent, and is considered a kind of taboo that people feel curiously there's something wrong with them and don't don't want to talk about it in your research on vampires does it look like vampires are found in every culture and and if they are like or, or how, i know i've actually read some of your work here so <laughs> good how, how how do they differ in european cultures uh, which seem to be the primary focus of what i was reading about the the main difference uh that's interesting to me is that <laughs> You don't need a vampire if you've got another type of scapegoat. And the, the biggest scapegoats uh, for much of history, for many people uh, in ordinary cultures, were the witch or the vampire. So the, the, the witch we know is kind of in official history as, as having been tortured, uh, executed, and then attacked less legitimately, as it were, by vigilantes after it was illegal to prosecute witches. Ordinary people kept doing this in Victorian England, for example. Um, so there's a strange kind of relationship between the witch and the vampire. The, the witch and the vampire both basically attacked life. If you want a very quick analysis of them, that's what they did. They attacked life. And the witch would attack children in the womb or in the cradle. The, the, the witch was actually believed to suck the life out of, out of children or people's believed possible. And you can see how that would come about through the symptoms of a nightmare, of course. The witch would uh, interfere with agriculture, whether it was your chickens not laying, whether it was your crops failing, whether it was drought, whether it was abnormally heavy rain and floods. And funnily enough, the things that the vampire isn't known for so much are that it could be uh, accused of causing bad weather, causing frosts, causing drought, and so forth. It was well into the 19th century that some peasants, in, I think it was Poland, uh, were tried for digging up a, a corpse just because there'd been severe recent frosts, for example. So with unwitting chivalry, it turns out, probably the, the vampire actually saved the lives of certain potential witches, whether they were men or women, usually women. And... Yeah, if you needed a scapegoat, I suppose for the sake of the scapegoat, it was better that they were dead when you killed them or undead when you killed them rather than, than a living witch. Well, I thought it was fascinating reading your book that uh, you gave an example that Greek vampires aren't repelled by sunlight and that they eat apples and nuts instead of drinking blood. That just seems so different from the, the cultural idea of a vampire that we have today in this culture. Yes, th thanks for bringing that up because it, it, it is an interesting area. I, it, it took me some time to get my head around this, but I realized that if someone resembling the stereotype of Christopher Lee or Bella Lugosi or Edward Pattinson even uh, started stalking through your, your mud streets in Greece or Romania, there was one reason to be frightened of them, and that was because someone so uncanny and chiseled and stylish looking was probably your landlord, and their blood sucking was a very mundane kind, not not a supernatural kind. So vampires were certainly much less stylized in in ordinary culture. They they don't need to drink blood. Uh, a person who believes 
fiercely in vampires in Greece might say, I've never heard of a, <coughs> a vampire drinking blood. Uh, as you say, they can be vegan. Uh, there was a, a person who identified as a vampire in Greece uh, because there were apples, nuts and grapes uh, stored in the coffin. Uh, there was a case when, and here we come to the scapegoat again, there were goats that were found dry of milk uh, routinely in the morning some disease I suppose and they believed that uh, a vampire was drinking the goat's milk uh, at at night they, they could go by day as, as you say you could meet them in full daylight uh, sunlight probably in Greece and they could kill you with their, their hideous aspect uh, alone yet they did not look gaunt uh, pale chiseled uh, skeletal if you like at all uh, they looked like uh, a corpse suffering processes of decomposition so uh, shabby like any peasant that died in an ordinary shroud uh, bloated with with corpse gases and reddened which made perfect sense in the belief of uh, the vampire villagers because it was it was alive and it wasn't necessarily feeding on blood but the fact that it was reddened meant that it, it had a healthy circulation it hadn't died so these these were the kind of signs to look for I, I, I'm concerned. I, I'm dressed in rags, bloated and reddened. I may be a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll uh, tell you a word. Not so, a vegan vampire. Don't worry. No, so, okay. <laughs> so, so it, what I actually find it interesting here is that um, having read a lot of vampire lore, I I've seen many books coming out with a single cause for vampirism like vampires are how people explain bloated corpses or blood dribbling out of the mouth or vampires are how people explain tuberculosis outbreaks and it sure. sounds like what you're saying is that vampirism represents uh, a human explanatory response to a spectrum of of phenomena yeah, that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. And, and it reminds us that basically the vampire was useful. The vampire was useful. It, it, it helped you get a sense of power in, in otherwise powerless circumstances. And certainly the tuberculosis one is interesting. Uh, Michael Bell obviously has, has pioneered this as regards the, the kind of curious North American vampires. And it was a devastating disease. You, you could have 14 members of your family die. And at least you had a sense of power. You had a sense of a, a framework of explanation. And yeah, vampires were like magic. They were useful. They gave you a sense of power uh, in an otherwise quite quite powerless world. Uh, you, you, you weren't trying to be entertained. You weren't trying to be creeped or spooked or sexually thrilled. Uh, you were trying to cope with a difficult world. So what do you think accounts for the transformation of the vampire in pop culture? That That is... Uh, a big question, and the, the question mm. is when uh, did, did people turn vampires into vampotainment? The 18th century is an interesting uh, example in that respect because you don't have vampire uh, fiction, but you, you have all these accounts that the peasants in Hungary and Romania and so forth believe to be true. So things like Carmes uh, or Zopfius's accounts from Central and Eastern Europe come over to... Uh, France to England and I think what's interesting there is you're dealing with uh, an educated culture in, in developed Europe to put it crudely that, that's highly enlightenment it, it, it's a very scientific culture it's very self-consciously scientific and rationalistic and I suppose people are perhaps getting a little bit bored with, with that world in some respects finding it a little bit rigid um, and so 
they don't necessarily believe in what's coming over from Europe, but they 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 like the idea that somebody else believes in it. It's 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 a bit entertaining for people who live in a very safe world who are sitting there with their nice china and their tea by their fireplace, not having to worry about practical problems. This is a kind of consumption of, of other people's terror at a distance. Later, as I say, the vampire was useful to peasants. The vampire's curiously useful in vampotainment as well. Later, you get Polydori's The Vampire, a highly sexualized tale, thought to be written by Byron, ironically enough, 1819. And later, you get uh, a kind of lesbian vampire tale by uh, Sheridan Le Fanu uh, called Carmilla in, in the early 1870s. And again, in Dracula in 1897, you, you have a kind of menage a quatre uh, between three female vamps and, and Jonathan Harker, the very upright, uh, chaste um, hero. And you can't normally do these things. You can't normally say these things. But once you muddy the waters a bit with the supernatural, you can get away with these thrills. So, so the vampire was useful uh, still later on. I suppose a basic thing, which is more buried, is that we do always have death on our minds to some extent. And to be able to straddle that boundary, to play around with it in relatively safe kind of forums between life and death, perhaps there's something psychologically important about that. Perhaps that, that needs to happen to, to get some kind of sense of control or, or familiarity over, over death. <laughs> there, it's funny to sort of think of Hammer Films as a modern version of Memento Mori, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, more crude, but uh, but yeah, starts to do some of the same job. We're going to start getting into some of the darker things, which I found really, really compelling uh, in, sure. in your writing. But before we get into that, what what measures were taken uh, in these these cultures that believed in vampires to prevent the corpses from becoming vampires? Yes, the, the preventative measures were, were were quite widespread and obviously made good sense uh, because the, the, the actual vampire outbreak and then the staking, the burning of the vampire was troublesome, was expensive. So you, you were very cautious about the, the treatment of, uh, of, of a corpse. Um, the, the key thing to understand here is that the danger of vampirism in, in most cultures seems to have arisen from what to us are very curious beliefs about death, uh, namely that in this kind of culture, uh, you could be uh, in three basic states, biologically, as it were. You could be alive, you could be dead, or you could be slightly dead. And this seemingly indeterminate, curious state was surprisingly common across cultures and history. When Christ raises Lazarus, this is considered to be a very big miracle in uh, the New Testament because, as Martha says to him, but he has been dead four days and he stinks. So... The three-day span is very important, the sense that three days you're only slightly dead and there's great danger that the corpse can be reanimated by its own soul or by a demon soul. Uh, this three-day span is, is very big in vampire culture and great caution is, is shown around uh, uh, a corpse. There's different treatments. You might bury the corpse quite quickly while it's still warm in the hope that... Um, it won't be vampirized. This has its own problems. Uh, or you might, in Greece, for example, into the 1980s and certain places, you might watch the corpse obsessively and everyone will be around it. It mustn't be left alone for a single second, but this has its own paradox, which is there's a circle, let's say, around this, this corpse laid out. And it's also crucial that nothing must cross over the corpse, nothing whatsoever, uh, a cup of coffee, a child, a cat, 
anything that crosses over the corpse and, and it's vampirized. And on this, this Greek island, uh, Via and this mountain village, uh, within living memory uh, at the time of the 1980s, people remembered this having happened by mistake. And interestingly, they then suffered sleep paralysis nightmares. This is what they describe essentially afterwards because they expected them to happen. They expected the vampire to come. And they, they took a very simple homely method. It was affordable uh, and you could try it at home if you wanted to. Um, you, you poured boiling oil and vinegar into uh, the grave through, through a hole. And by doing this, you, you cause the soul of the, the corpse or the vampire to burst and you destroyed the soul. So extraordinary thing in a, in a, a culture with you know, no formal religious power. They knew what they were doing and they were capable of a heresy, if you like, of, of cosmic proportions to, to protect themselves. What were the ingredients again? Uh, boiling oil and vinegar. If you do want to try it at at, at home, if you want to, it's, it's like <laughs> Italian dressing will kill. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what it's you've tasty. got to hand. It's what you've got yeah. to hand. It's very difficult. Yeah. I think this also feeds into the idea of premature burial. I've always been fascinated by that and the strange inventions and things that people yeah. devise to prevent that. Could you tell us a little bit about premature burial? Yes. Yes. So. Two, two notable cases uh, from Bulgaria and Greece. They, they buried the corpse as soon as they could, more or less, it seems, certainly while it was still warm. And a Bulgarian case, which is, is reliably reported from two British army officers who stayed uh, in a remote uh, village called Derekui, um some distance from Varna, in the 1860s. Uh, these men, Brophy and Sinclair, uh, heard a story about a neighboring village uh, called Anekli, and here a, a child was understood to be dead and was buried uh, quickly. The mother was around the fountain shortly afterwards and she heard the earth uh, stirring. She heard the child beneath the earth uh, alive. She, she unearthed the child, it was still alive, and she took it back to her house. And you can imagine the scenes of kind of rejoicing, a sense of miracle and so forth, and many cultures if it was, were to happen. Unfortunately, she was seen taking the child back and as far as we know, everyone in the village was convinced that the child was, was a vampire, had been vampirized. And this is what happened, the exact account. About that time, some of the villagers saw the child, the council was assembled, and the child was condemned to death as a vampire. The sentence was executed in this most cruel way. The mother was held down by four or five old women, but so as to be able to see the torture of her child, this being deemed necessary to exorcise the vampire. The child was then killed according to the following process. One woman held the poor little thing's hands and another the feet, and a third ran it through the abdomen with a bit of thin pointed wood. The person who stuck the child in relating to me this murder as an act of virtue said that she had rarely had such bother with a vampire before. It took a full quarter of an hour to kill it, and its screams were most dreadful. The woman who killed the child is still alive and can be brought to court if needed." Horrible. Yeah. I, I think in, in the way you wrote about it in the book, you do a good job of, of giving Sorry. it an immediacy, emotional immediacy. Yes. It, it, it's beyond belief almost. And yet when you look at the details surrounding it, it's clear that, A, everyone agreed on it. There, there was a consensus, really, uh, mm -hmm. probably apart from the mother, but, but there was a general consensus otherwise. And, and B, the awful sense that it had happened quite a lot before, that the old lady says she'd never had such trouble killing a vampire before. And she was old, of course, so she'd had a long life in which to experience uh, these, these things. And a comparative uh, account 
uh, comes from a Greek island. We don't have an exact date, but uh, the person recalling it was, was speaking in the early 1960s, and it looks as though it would have been around the start of the 20th century, end of the 19th. And somebody was uh, being uh, buried, but the, the coffin was still open. And while the funeral was taking place, uh, I gather outside, they stirred, sat up in the coffin. And again, rather than that sense of joy, relief, miracle, uh, absolute terror, and the, the people standing around stoned the, uh, the the person to death. And could you just tell us a little bit about some of the interesting inventions that were created to prevent this from happening? Yeah, uh, multiple. Uh, it's Bell's patented uh, life-saving device, isn't it? I think it's the most famous um, in the 18th century, I, I gather, where you had a cord and a bell that, that you could pull um, because this was happening quite a lot. Uh, there, there, are, there are awful stories about um, knockings heard and people found sat up in a way, uh, they've struggled. Um, there's a story, I believe, about someone actually kind of eating bits off their arms in, in the coffin because they're so starving. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the mechanisms for working out if somebody was dead were, were pretty primitive, pretty crude. Uh, as they start to get more nervous about this, they would thrust red-hot needles uh, under the toes and fingernails of the inverted commas corpse. And uh, if it was in any doubt about being dead, I expect it would sit up at this this point, perhaps. So, yeah, it became, uh, as, as one commentator has uh, said, one of the greatest fears of uh, of everyday life and it's lingered on i suppose in um in modern kind of horror culture hasn't it in a film like the vanishing or a film like buried so this is a unimaginably terrifying thing to to happen it must have been really strange for the people who lived in cultures of vampirism to know that even if they did manage to get out which you're going to do if you're alive (laughs) you're going to try but even if you do that your own family and friends will murder you (laughs) that 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 really puts the nail in the coffin, so to speak, doesn't it? That, that if you do escape, I would imagine your only chance practically would be to become an absolute outlaw and then vanish to another village or town uh, where, where you wouldn't be known. The problem being that, ironically, people were very kind of insular in these cultures and anybody from another village or town was automatically suspect and could actually be considered uh, a live vampire uh, themselves, a special kind of vampire. Uh, for other reasons, people were very uh, narrow-minded in these in these environments. It probably wouldn't help if you're wandering around co- in grave clothes covered in earth. So what? <laughs> this would be a bit of a giveaway as, as, as well, really. Yes, a bit of a smoking gun, I guess. Perhaps better to stay in the coffin, I think. In modern times, um, have you looked into the people who self-identify as real vampires? Uh, yeah, a, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, uh, an area where you get a spectrum of very consensual, very kind of safe uh, vampirism with sterilized needles, uh, people drinking one another's blood um, in, in seemingly very uh, you know, equal hierarchical relationships in, in North America, for example, through to, of course, uh, vampire psychopaths, uh, another area altogether where they, they do also uh, self-identify very much. Uh, and, um, you know, after being tried and uh, imprisoned and so forth for crimes like these. They, they, they will never give up necessarily this vampire belief. This is a, a crucial part of their, their identity. Because in, in a sense, it, it seems like the people who are acting out this sort of cultural vampirism are, um, are doing something that looks, based on your research, to be 
almost entirely based on uh, the pop culture vampire versus an authentic vampire. So it seems much more like a sociological phenomena, maybe a psychological phenomena. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It, it does look generally like that. Uh, they they base themselves on blood drinking vampires. So whether from fiction or from film, uh, they, they, they have that kind of stereotype. And people who are really terrified of vampires have no need to believe in that a lot of a lot of the time. Um, there's a, a notorious case from, I think it's California, a, a man called Daniel Sterling, who tried to murder his girlfriend, certainly stabbed her multiple times. Um, shortly after he'd been to see uh, the recently released uh, film version of, of Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. And he behaved in a kind of muddy sort of way, a rather devious way, really, um, kind of linking the vampire showing to his own actions, but at the same time, not quite blaming blaming that. But certainly there was a, there was a weird sense of a kind of postmodern vampire psychopath at work there. And I've seen on shows like Is It Real, you, you may have seen uh, these kinds of segments where they have uh, people who claim that they drink blood um, and they're, they're tested to see if they have anemia or some other kind of blood disorder and invariably they don't. And so that's not the, the reason for them apparently drinking blood. And I've had anemia myself before and I've never yeah. craved blood. <laughs> no, no, I'm a bit sceptical of this sense that you really need the blood. I've seen this coming right. up in in um, books like um, Noreen Dresser's American Vampires, that they really need it. They have a, a physical itching for it, and they need they claim to need more at certain times of the year sometimes as well. Um, but, if, yeah, um, no, if you've had anemia, that's quite a good example because the iron would be the obvious reason. But, of course, you can you can quite quickly get iron toxicity as well from, from drinking much blood. So uh, it's a fine, fine balance, I guess. Yeah, might, might crave meat or something, but not blood. <laughs> Something, something, yeah, traditional. Or Flintstones, tried and, yeah. Tried Spinach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in your research, you tie vampirism with poltergeist phenomena. So how does that actually fit into the vampire lore? And what's the link between these two phenomena? At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and 
Wagon. Yeah, see, the poltergeist phenomena have been the last kind of bits in the puzzle, I suppose, for me. I, I spent a lot of time trying to work out the the medical scientific underpinnings, the things that otherwise look very strange and, and implausible, such as hallucinations, which turn out to be sleep paralysis hallucinations. And for a long time, I, I would really just kind of bracket off great chunks of the of the, the text, reliable text, you know, penned by uh, a clergyman, for example, during a vampire outbreak and so forth. And I would, I would kind of throw these into a, a mental waste bin, if you like, with a sense of irritation that this just can't be true. These people stick to the point um, with the feeling reading about the vampire causing hammering noises, flashing lights, throwing things around, beating people up. Uh, and, and more bizarre things than that, sometimes the deathbed smells, uh, following people around the house and, and so on. But th- these things recur over a long period of time, from the 1590s at least, to the 1920s at, at least, in Greece, in Romania, in uh, the Ukraine, uh, in Bulgaria. And so I'd seen enough of this. I started to think, I, I need to know a bit more about poltergeists. Um, when I started reading up on poltergeists, having no interest in them whatsoever for, for most of my life, I, I started to think these accounts look consistent at any rate. Whether they're plausible or not, they're very strange. That they, they look consistent over a long period of time in different cultures. And to answer the question about the vampires, it's necessary to give you a, just a working hypothesis about how poltergeist phenomena Seem to seem to operate the mechanisms of these things. So counterintuitive things are, are happening. Noises with no source can be very very loud. Um, objects being thrown around uh, with no obvious agent. Objects sometimes exploding in, in their place without moving. Uh, fires erupting w- w- with no obvious reason. And uh, very strange things called apports, where an object will appear. Uh, seemingly from nowhere, a liquid will appear seemingly from nowhere, seems to have fallen, say, through the ceiling, and yet you find it on the kitchen floor and the ceiling above is is dry. And looking at most of these accounts, you tend to find that you don't have a haunted house, you have a haunted person, just using that for shorthand, I don't know there's necessarily any ghosts involved, but you have a haunted person, and the paradox is that with these horrific things going on, terrorizing a family, they will flee to another house, and the phenomena will simply follow them uh, because, as far as we can tell, the the immediate cause of the phenomena is what tends to be called a poltergeist agent. And this is uh, a person, usually between about 8 and 25, let's say, who's often suffering some kind of degree of emotional trauma, uh, whether it's they've been bereaved, um, they've always been an orphan, uh, something sexual that can't be expressed directly. And... This simmers within them, and without an outlet for expression, finally they unconsciously release uh, in a kind of pressure cooker way this this dangerous energy, and the energy causes these poltergeist phenomena. As far as we can tell, they're certainly very, very closely linked to or follow these these agents. So your mechanisms there, just as a hypothesis, are uh, a person with some degree of emotional trauma who tends to have to be with other people, that, that trauma depends on a relationship with other people, so on their own is not very likely. What I can work out at the moment, this is a very difficult area, with the poltergeist phenomena, the energetic mechanism, if you like, the energetic uh, cause or medium for, for this is, is fear, is terror. It's, it's not emotional trauma of a more kind of subtle, if you like, uh, personal kind. It, it's raw terror. 
there's a continuum of terror with vampire outbreaks, which runs from things like conversion disorder, as it's termed, that you, you become psychosomatically deaf, uh, dumb, blind, you have a paralyzed limb. This is a matter of public record, pretty much, I think, is well attested in magical cultures and witch cultures. Uh, and it runs through to something that's more contested, but that to me looks plausible. And this is voodoo death, that if you believe in a source of um, terror sufficiently, you can actually die of that terror. And symptoms are fairly consistent that people will become fatalistic, uh, more or less lie down and die, refuse food and water, and they'll die within about one to three days and quite fairly consistent time span. And there's very reliable looking cases from uh, Aboriginal cultures, magical cultures, witch cultures, and a girl called uh, Stanoska or Stanaka, depending on the reports um, in uh, Hungary in, in the 18th century, has sleep paralysis nightmares, sees a particular named person coming back and throttling her and, and dies uh, within three days. So you have terror that's sufficient to do that. Uh, and this terror also seems to be the medium for the poltergeist phenomena, which are reported over and over again in, in vampire country. I, that reminds me of um, people who have been in long relationships and then their partner dies and then within a couple of days they die. That, that always seemed very yes. interesting to me. That, that yeah. Like a failure to thrive. Yes, that, that's interesting because it's, it's a much more kind of non-magical example, isn't it? And it, it reminds us that um, apparently people who've been misdiagnosed with a cancer, for example, will, in inverted commas, die of that cancer. They, they will die of a kind of fatalism. And in a sense, they're dying of, of their belief and, and belief in something powerful. And that, that thing, ironically, is science. Uh, that science has said to them, you, you will die. And, and they have done on, on record. Uh, so, according to your research, what is the evidence for poltergeist cases? Uh, the evidence is, is, is abundant and very long-running. I suppose to give you a, a frame uh, for it, and I can give you some particular cases to, to focus it, if you take uh, an event or set of events which are, are contested and uh, legally significant, you, you expect reliable people to come forward and tell you what has happened uh, and you, 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 you listen to those people, you watch those people in real time speaking. These people are witnesses and poltergeist witnesses are a very, very varied bunch of people. They are lawyers, scientists, uh, police officers, journalists, academics, uh, reverends and, and, and keep going really. It's hard to get a particular type. So you have a lot of, of very, very plausible witnesses for this. And you have a lot of consistent accounts uh, across places where they don't have a concept of a poltergeist, uh, in, in vampire country, for example, uh, across very widely separated periods. But they tell you the same kind of thing. And quite often, even if they're giving you the very barest details, a very short report, for example, they'll just slip in very quickly that, there's a child who is the grandchild of the household. They're not living with their parents or, or they've been bereaved and so forth. So it's, it's surprisingly easy to see uh, a likely agent in a lot of these cases. Um, some paradoxes here in terms of the evidence. I remember 
talking to a friend about this, and this friend was sceptical, rightly, so on, on a, a quick sketch of it, and said, well, they wanted to see some films. Um, I've, I've tried to go through the films. Now, maybe some of them are more plausible than others, all the photographs. Unfortunately, of course, films and photographs perhaps have less value now when we live in an age of, of digital manipulation. So some of the cases I think that are more useful are ones that are well reported consistently and repeatedly from the, say, the 19th century or the 18th century. Uh, and this is for, for a few reasons, but I'll, I'll give you a, a case, first of all, to just to focus us in, in concrete terms. So this is Clewer, uh, which is uh, C-L. E-W-E-R, uh, near Windsor in, in England, and it's June 1841. There's uh, a detached house called Wants Cottage, Wants Cottage, and this is occupied by an elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, and their two daughters, and uh, a female servant. And there's a, there's a knocking, a rapping, always around the water closet, um, described as like the sound of knuckles knocking on a board, and this is heard by the inmates of houses up to 500 yards away. There's immediate witnesses called in uh, presently, people who are there when the knocking is happening and they run to the parent source, try and catch someone. They can see no one, they can catch no one. So I'll just give you the names of some witnesses. Mr. Riley, Mr. Harcourt, Lord Clement Hill, Mr. Edmund Foster and the Reverend Mr. Gould. Uh, presently, the knocking's going on. It can be heard, as you say, at a distance uh, much of the day and the night. And... Uh, Mrs. Roberts, who lives a distance away across two roads, threatens to give notice to uh, her landlord to leave if, if the knocking doesn't stop. Uh, Monday, the 21st of June, still going on, London scientist comes down to investigate. All the floorboards around the WC are taken up. The drains are opened and uh, examined. And the noises keep happening in the presence of various witnesses and a police officer who's now uh, on duty. Uh, they're heard again by the police officer, uh, the following Tuesday morning, the family has then had it and packs up and leaves uh, and the noises stop. So that's, uh, that's a very concrete uh, and very interesting case. Um, I'll, I'll invite questions if you like. You know, <laughs> we, we've looked at uh, poltergeists before, and I know Karen and I both have done a lot of reading and research on this. Um, and I almost have to, I feel like I have to apologize almost because it's, the the skeptical position on poltergeist is not very satisfying. Uh, it, it's it's not much fun because what what we we have is all these stories and scenarios where witnesses are seeing amazing things, but every time when they've brought in investigators, we we haven't been able to capture much of that phenomena uh, under scientific uh, terms. I know William Roll did a lot of investigation. Yes. And, when I, and he actually is from Georgia. So when I was in high school, I was actually considering going to college to study parapsychology. Okay, yes. Uh, yeah, but yes. Um, but I wasn't able to do that, and I ended up becoming an IT guy, and this is a long story. But um, yes. from a skeptic perspective, we haven't been able to reproduce any of these effects and all we end up with is anecdotes, and, and all we can say is science doesn't have any explanation for these outside of the the standard, you know, rules of physics. But but these things do tend to violate the rules of physics. I mean, um, right now science doesn't have a known mechanism whereby someone can use emotional or, or, or psychic energy to create these effects. Um, so it's it's um, yet at the same time poltergeist. 
events keep taking place. So uh, I guess my question is, what's your working hypothesis on how this might actually be taking place? The hypothesis, as, as, as I say, is I think usually one agent, it's usually just one. Um, sometimes somebody else seems to kind of catch the ability. And it's something to do with the brain of the agent, I think. that There's, there's these teasing little features that actually link to science in, in, in various ways. So, for example, you take somebody like Matthew Manning, who's the, the focus of, of abundant poltergeist phenomena, I mean, very, very well documented because it, it happened in his boarding school, for example, and his, his headmaster didn't know what to do about this, uh, wanted, you know, thought about expelling Manning, but obviously felt this wasn't fair in the circumstances uh, with this happening in, in the 1970s. And several poltergeist agents or people who've had poltergeist things happen around them, another person being Uri Geller, have had severe electric shocks had severe electric shocks uh, before they were 10 years old, as though something unusual has happened to, to their brain. And th these are interesting cases because where you normally expect some degree of trauma or problems um, psychologically from an agent, at other times you just suspect there's something unusual about their brain. You just suspect this. And the fact that most cases tend to be pubescent, adolescent, gives you a sense that there's, there's a certain kind of energy in that very, very big event, that kind of second birth into puberty uh, that, that affects the brain. The electrical side seems to surface again here and there in terms of something like um, cases where you, you actually isolate the seeming agent. You, you put uh, cork or glass under their bed or in their shoes and the phenomena stop once they've been electrically uh, insulated. If I can give you uh, another case, I quite like to talk about the, the Windsor case a little bit more because I find it interesting. But another case which I'll pronounce abysmally, uh, Tolster Chaloy is uh, on the island of Lewis. And my Gaelic is very thin indeed, so I apologize to any um, native speakers. But in 1938, January 1938, uh, there were intense solar storms, uh, intense outbursts of the northern lights. Uh, around Britain, so great that they could actually be seen in Sussex, so not very northern uh, at all. And 10.30 on Sunday morning, um, 30th of January, 1938, uh, Mrs. McLeod, 80 years old, was sat by her fire uh, in her cottage on the island of uh, Lewis. Uh, she was with a teenage granddaughter and the girl's younger brother. And by the hearth were things called currents, which are chunks of peat you used to to light the fire. These suddenly began to dance about, to jump about. Uh, one jumped into Mrs. McLeod's cup of tea. Uh, another struck her on the face. Uh, and they uh, then had a servant girl come in and uh, open a, a door connecting with a pantry. And uh, she called out that a tumbler had broken. And then this is what happened. The other dishes on the shelf began to break with a loud cracking sound. The cups, which were hanging in little hooks on the dresser, fell off and smashed to pieces. The plates and saucers broke off where they lay, while the astonished girl watched them from a short distance. A jug which contained rice shot off the dresser over the girl's head and smashed on the floor, not far from the stove in the bedroom. In doing so, it had to turn the sharp corner formed by the angle of the wall to get to the bedroom door. Another jug containing peas meal shot off the dresser around the corner of the door, clean across the bedroom, and came to rest on the bed. Various things hurl around. Um, and uh, later on, uh, they find a, uh, a piece of soap split down the middle, sort of cleanly cut down the middle, um, uh, a toothbrush of, of plastic, um, 
snapped in three pieces very cleanly. Uh, and later still, the old lady um, goes to pick up a ball of wool to do some darning, and it crumbles to pieces like ash, as though lightning has passed through it. So I, I invite scientists more scientific than um, me, which would be difficult to to analyze this. But it's as though the house went, went live during a, a Northern Lights storm, and it's a very odd poltergeist event. It, it follows definite laws of, of poltergeist phenomena very clearly, particularly that going round a sharp corner. And it only lasts for minutes. I don't think we know of any poltergeist cases that are over in minutes, but it, it, it really looks like it happened. And it looks like there's a reason that it happened. We know that solar storms cause massive damage to uh, telegraph systems, to radio systems, electrical systems, and so forth. And occasionally big estimates are made of you know how bad the damage um, from a solar storm could be in, in financial terms. So we seem to have a kind of teasing link there between something which doesn't need to be treated supernaturally, which doesn't actually have a poltergeist agent, and yet which looks remarkably like a poltergeist phenomena. The, the other one that's happening within the last few weeks, um, which I'd be interested to know your opinions on, is is Caneto di Carania in uh, Sicily, where on and off since 2003, 2004, there have been extraordinary fires, uh, extraordinary events that have caused the population uh, uh, to be evacuated you know, for, for weeks on end and brought the, uh, the water board, the fire board, all sorts of scientific experts in. Um, and, and overall, to no avail, uh, it's still happening again, um, I think, 25th of September. Uh, and that is really a, a matter of public record that you've got spontaneous fires all over the place with no obvious cause, that you've got car door locks acting in a peculiar way, mobile phones acting in a peculiar way. These overlap with, with well-recorded poltergeist phenomena. And I don't think many people actually dispute the fact that they've happened. These are really a matter of public record. Yeah, I don't know too much about that, do you, Blake? They're going to look into it. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. But, do, do get out to me. Thanks. Yeah. But in general, uh, I, I think I'm fascinated by these stories, by poltergeist claims, and, and they still do seem to be rare, uh, and I'm just wondering, would you put most of these down to just natural explanations? Maybe that people are exaggerating uh, with the, the claims of the phenomena, or maybe there's trickery involved? I, I, I'd put it this way, and I mean this genuinely. Uh, it might sound slightly adversarial, but I, I would take a case, and I'm very happy to work with someone on this if they want to. I would take a case from, let's say, the 19th century or the 18th century, uh, like this case in Windsor, and I would invite the, the skeptics um, to reproduce that case as it's described with the technology of the time in the circumstances of the building uh, that we've had described and, and to get away with it. I would actually invite them to do this. I know some and, people who'd love to do that. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see it tried. Uh, if it's all naturally explained, it's fine by me. I always like the simplest possible explanation. Um, we'll keep but, in touch. <laughs> but a couple of interesting things perhaps about those 19th century examples I'd like to know who the hoaxer was. I'd like to know who the hoaxer was because the most likely person, and this is not a very likely person, but the, the, the least unlikely person would be the servant girl. I think the servant girl was a poltergeist agent. I think that when they went away, they took away the agent and the phenomena stopped. Now, I'm sure you know what the status of a 19th century or 18th century servant was like. It, it was precarious. If, 
if they had a bad reference, if they did something that was wrong, if they fell foul of their employers for whatever reasons, uh, that, that their livelihood was in danger and perhaps their life was in danger if they couldn't get a job, they, they couldn't get a reference. This was an era where people starved to death. So the likelihood of them being able to perform a hoax like that, the likelihood of them wanting to perform a hoax like that, it, it's, it's just not very plausible. And you've then also got to bear in mind that I think amongst a lot of people, you're dealing with a quite high standard of public integrity, that when a lord, a clergyman, a police officer, and so forth, swear to something happening, this is at least as good as someone standing up in the witness box and swearing on a Bible that, that something happened. These, these people have not obviously got anything to gain, uh, and in fact, argue that they've got something to lose from attesting to these things, as Reed Clanny, for example, who was a scientist in the 19th century, had uh, when he attested to the case of, of Virginia Jobson. Um, so with a fairly low-tech world where you, your, your means of hoaxing are quite thin, uh, and with a fairly high standard of public integrity, uh, with a detached house and a servant who wanted to keep their job, I, I, I'm not convinced that there's a, an ordinary explanation for this one. Yeah, the it may be easier to do uh, investigations of the more modern cases just because there might be uh, more available evidence beyond uh, what the written stories. But yeah. uh, but that being said, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. fascinating topic regardless. Yeah. And we've covered it a little bit here before. In uh, we've covered the uh, the Tina Resch case, the, the Columbus poltergeist. And okay, we ta- good. Yeah, we talked about. Um, uh, are you familiar with Jeff the Talking Mongoose? Oh yes, I, slightly. Although that one became so curious that I, I didn't delve into it too much. It's the Art of Man, I think, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You, you should look into it. it it's. Uh, yeah. I think you'll find that uh, we had a guest on named Christopher Joseph who's still doing research, and he's got access to. A yeah. lot of the original uh, research materials. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Lots of poltergeist activity in that one. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So almost every poltergeist case I'm familiar with has some young person associated yeah. with it. But yeah. here's my question that yeah. I think we it probably bears investigation. I, I'm aware of at least one case where there was an apportation of stones falling uh, that happened consistently – or yeah. allegedly apportation. I, I suspect there might have been something else going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But regardless, there was no teenager involved, and it was affecting multiple households in, in, in England. And yeah. uh, it was covered on the Arthur C. Clarke's, I think, Mysterious World. He did three series, uh, and one of those covered Poltergeist. And it's very, very interesting uh, stories because some of them were revealed to be hoaxes. Others are, are unknown mysteries. Um, but um, I, I think that's... I, I, what I'm curious about is, do poltergeist cases uh, necessarily require a focus, or do people mathematically sort of like es- exclude cases where there isn't a focus, and that's just mysterious phenomena, but not a poltergeist? You know what I mean? Yes, I, I quite agree with you. I think I think you're quite right. I think that people tend to, at first, just sweep away something that doesn't fit that agent hypothesis. And I have to sympathize with them because when you're going through a lot of counterintuitive stuff, it makes your head hurt, actually. And to get rid of sort of Charles Fort stories about stones and peaches and rain falling from clear skies, you know, clears, clears the way for you to focus and structure things a little bit. But I think in the end, we've got to, we've got to own up and say that there are poltergeist-type phenomena that don't have an obvious agent. And, and Canetto di Carania, you should be able to find a fair bit about this in the Times and, and various newspaper archives. Or, to be honest, just 
now because it's been happening last month again. It's really not obvious that there's an agent there. I mean, it's happened all over the village. Uh, it would be very curious. Um, with, with the vampire ones, just briefly, it's, it's evident that you probably do have multiple agents because when you get the sleep paralysis, people tell each other, they get frightened, they have sleep paralysis as well, and, and it is almost like a contagion of fear. Uh, so I suspect that there's multiple agents in, in those cases. Uh, an interesting case there, quite well documented, is from 1700 on Mykonos Island in Greece, where Tournefort, a French botanist, um, is there during a vampire panic, and he's absolutely bemused, he's absolutely sceptical and uh, fairly derisory about it, but, but he's convinced at the same time that they are terrified out of their wits, he, they're not faking, and um, he describes abundant poltergeist phenomena related to him by the, uh, the natives, the locals, and he, he, uh, he says the only house that the ghost doesn't or the vampire doesn't attack is, is the house of the French consul with whom we lodged. Now, that that would, on one level, make you think, yeah, because they're hallucinating, they're imagining things, they're making things up. Um, they didn't seem to be making them up, so they were really very terrified. Um, but actually, what this also fits with on another level is the plausible mechanics of poltergeist phenomena that do obey their own kind of laws. Uh, they're not scientific laws that we know properly, but William Roll uh, documented that you, you got a, a kind of falling curve with distance. The further away you got from the apparent agent, the less likely the phenomena were to happen. He, he did this in a Florida poltergeist case, went on for some time. Um, so it would actually make a kind of scientific sense that the phenomena don't occur there in the um, French consul's house because no one's frightened. No one's frightened, so there's no bad energy, so there's no poltergeist um, for, for that reason. So in those kind of cases, you do seem to have multiple agents, but I think you're right. In other cases, you don't seem to have an obvious agent. I don't think there was an agent in Tolster Chaloy necessarily. It, uh, it ended so quickly. It looked like it was dependent on the Northern Lights. Um, and other times you have agents who seem to be much older than they should be, um, in fact, and there's just something unusual about their brains. Um, perhaps they have epileptic type symptoms and things like that. That's been, been uh, documented quite well. I think, um, in a, in, a, in a future episode, hopefully not too down, far down the road. Um, anyway, there's some local brain researchers who are doing yeah. research on the physical manifestations of fear or how the brain interprets fear. And okay. I had this sort of working hypothesis that, yeah. that when we're in a fearful state, that we're more likely to ascribe agency to uh, things that happen. That, like, that, and... and, and that seems to be consistent with a lot of the other kinds of monsters we've looked at, and especially in hauntings, where as, as, as things take place and you start to yeah. look for the cause as a haunting, that there's yeah. sort of this natural tendency to start to group any mysterious phenomena yeah. as part of the haunting rather than to examine each element as its own uh, occurrence. And I know that, that, that I was very tempted to do that. And in fact, before I became... Uh, sort of a skeptical person and, and sort of reevaluating my experiences, I was yeah. certain I had experienced a haunting because so many odd things had happened. But there's that thing where you, maybe you hear a song and it's got a lyric and then later on you hear somebody say the phrase and it seems to be yeah. creating a synchronicity, you know, type yeah. effect. And yeah. I, I think there's something about the brain becoming attuned to these phenomena um, and, and they start to build a narrative and everything in people, we always love stories and narratives. And I, I just wonder how much of this happens uh, because we're accruing the elements of this fantastic story 
rather than there's always something mysterious at play. I don't know the answer yes, to that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I think you do have to be very, very careful with the tricks the brain can play. And I think you have to be very open to what science can find out. I, I'm very keen to, to treat poltergeist phenomena as a scientific opportunity waiting to be exploited. I, I like it to be scientifically explained. Uh, I think it will be a different kind of science, but it, it could be very interesting and, uh, and fruitful. Although I would say in terms of the fear that you refer to, um, I can see how the fear would make people search for something exterior, supernatural, something they can kind of identify and attack, a bit like a, a vampire can be attacked. But, but actually quite a few of these cases, it's surprising how little fear there can be um, in, in poltergeist cases where uh, they might even think it's a ghost, but they're not actually that frightened of it. If you look at the Wesley case, the Wesley family in 1717, uh, I think it is, they that they have a, a long-running, very well-detailed, very precisely described set of poltergeist events happening in, in Epworth Rectory, uh, described by several different people because different letters survive, different members of the family, and they don't really seem frightened much of the time, actually. Um, the most frightened uh, member of the family is, is a stout mastiff uh, that they summon to take care of them, and it jumps under the bedclothes. Um, but a lot of the time they, they aren't actually that frightened. I suppose to, to answer your, your kind of concerns there indirectly, in terms of getting something that isn't people making a subjective analysis of unusual or frightening phenomena, interesting one to me is, is the recordings that have been made of poltergeist rappings. Now, you can perhaps write off certain things as hallucinations. I think the word hallucination is used as a bit lazily a lot of the time, actually. But, but it's hard to write this off as a hallucination at any rate. And this is the, when Barry Colvin, who I believe was a physicist, made recordings of poltergeist rappings. He, he found that they produce a different acoustic signature. You cannot actually replicate this acoustic signature on your own, rapping anything you like. Um, and I was struck by the fact that with Colvin having done this with recording technology and so forth uh, in the, the late 20th century, if you uh, go back to uh, a case in the 19th century, uh, a place called uh, Muchelmay, where they have wrappings going on again, with, with no sense of, of, of a concept of an acoustic signature, one of the witnesses says that, well, these noises, everyone can hear them. They're hammeringly loud, but they don't echo. They don't echo. And they actually go to the door of the cottage and they fire a gun out of the door of the cottage. And they say, look, that echoes around the, the cottage. To me, that, that is a, a very uncanny coincidence, that sense of noises that aren't like normal noises across, you know, 120 years. Um, something quite objective about that, actually. I, I'm not a big fan of rap recordings, but I could take a listen. Hurt your ears too much. That is actually very interesting. We, we, I wrote some notes down. We're going to take a look at that. Good, thanks. So, when will your book actually be published? When is it coming out? Oh, I'm I'm keen to get a big trade publisher for this. So, uh, it's it's a slightly slower process than with um, the uh, the academic books. So uh, the vampire book is is pretty much finished. I want to do a little conclusion on vampire tourism, which is a sort of fun new phenomenon. Um, but the vampire um, book is with my agent, and today uh, seeking a, a trade publisher. And I expect to be working on the the poltergeist book uh, probably from around next spring, next summer. 
um, for, for a few months. I think it's a very, very big topic. And I want a sympathetic publisher who will publish a large book of many words. Vampire tourism must be very difficult if they can't cross running water. Yes, all sorts, <laughs> all sorts of problems for uh, the vampire tourist. Yeah, yeah, not easy. Through all salt water. Well, Richard, we're going to be wrapping things up, but we've just got a final question. Uh, We know that you were on the show quite recently and you already answered this question, but just for those listeners who who didn't uh, tune into that particular episode, what's your favourite monster? Yeah, I guess I think I answered this uh, in these terms before, and certainly my answer now is is the poltergeist. The poltergeist is, is a name for a cluster of very strange events, and yet... Uh, those events are kind of monstrous. They seem to straddle the worlds, worlds of um, science and magic. They seem to straddle the mundane world and the, the supernatural world. Um, seem to, I say, I don't need to believe in a supernatural world for these things. But also, uh, the word monster um, comes from a root meaning to show, to demonstrate, or monstrance, as in the, the Catholic monstrance. Uh, and I think these things have a lot to show us, have a lot to tell us. So uh, this is very much my favorite monster uh, at the moment. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us again. Thank you. Yeah, thank Some great you. questions. Thanks a lot. I will definitely be picking up your book when it's released. It's- Me too. Thank- thanks a lot. Let me know. Fantastic. The excerpts you let us read were great. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Richard Sugg of Durham University discussing his forthcoming book on vampires. I'm Blake Smith, and my co-host was Dr. Karen Stolsnow. I really enjoyed this interview because we got to discuss fascinating stories of the unusual, as well as the often lively topic of how science deals with claims that would seem to violate the rules of physics. I hope we're able to continue looking into these stories because even if they don't reveal exceptions to our understanding of science, they do shed light on how we perceive the world and how our ancestors perceived the world. If we're able to collaborate with Dr. Sog on investigating some of these cases, we'll tell you about it here on Monster Talk. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed here represent those of myself and my guests, and not necessarily those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. I love monsters and stories about monsters. When I ask folks to review Monster Talk on iTunes, I'm not asking because we want a bunch of five-star reviews. It's also because it's a place where I go to find audience feedback. While most of our reviews are quite positive, the exceptions tend to be about us being dismissive and mocking of beliefs, which are different than ours. I'm bothered by that because it isn't my intention. My goal with this show is to do a science outreach, and I'm strongly inclined to believe that mockery is simply the very worst way to engage an audience if you want them to have an honest look at your own opinion. If you're a listener to Monster Talk and you find something we say offensive or demeaning, please let us know. Send me an email. I'm easy to find. Blake at monstertalk.org. Or if you have a question or any feedback, let me know. Or come join the Monster Talk Facebook group and let us know there. That's fine. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. The music heard during the introduction was by All India Radio. Thanks again for listening.
you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.